Welcome to Life Lessons with Dr. Steve Shell. For 20 years, Dr. Steve's 30-minute radio program, Life Lessons, was heard throughout the United States. Committed to comprehensively teaching through entire books of the Bible, Pastor Steve pulls out the deep, eternal truths in each section of Scripture without skipping over the challenging passages. He applies what is learned clearly and practically so that we're inspired not to just be hearers of the Word, but doers also. John chapter 8, starting at verse 46. We're going to finish the chapter, Lord willing. (laughs) This has been quite the, uh, it's really about two days period. This chapter 8 covers about two days. Uh, As far as I can see, it's, uh, Jesus has been down at uh, 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 preaching and ministering during the Feast of Tabernacles, which is uh, around October. Uh, and he's come down, and during the middle of the week, he started preaching in, in the big gatherings in the temple and all. Great crowds were gathering. It's quite dangerous. They want to kill him. I mean, they really want to kill him. And uh, so he's doing it anyway. Then the, the, what would have been from t- the day I'm taking today, the day before, that woman was brought and placed before him who was caught in the act of adultery. And they said, uh, what, the law says this, what do you say? And he, he had that wonderful reply, he is without sin, cast the first stone. We saw him, how he dealt with the, the law. Because that was the challenge. Will you uphold the moral sanctions of the law? Or are you so, are you so new in what you bring that you're going to throw those over? Uh, he did uphold the moral sanctions, but he also showed the compassion of God and the humility. Of, that we're all to have about our own sin. Uh, and then he has been preaching himself. He's been proclaiming who he is. And it's caused uh, quite a stir. Many of these people are Jewish leaders. They are the, they are the priests. They are, they are the ultra-Orthodox or the Pharisees. Uh, they're the, the high leaders mixed into a great crowd in the very uh, women's court of the temple, right in the very heart of things. And in the course of this... While he's preaching, after he's, after he's made the statement, actually, you will know that what I'm saying is from God when you lift me up on a cross. In other words, when you watch how I die, you'll know my heart. And it says, and many believed in him. Many of these, it's, and, and we know that many priests did. You'll see it in, in Acts chapter 6. I mean, there's, there's quite this move. So people who knew their Bibles believed in him. They believed he's the Messiah, the son of David. Uh, They believed because he's been saying that he's the son of God, that he has come from heaven as as well. So this this has happened. But then a whole group did not, did not believe in him. They began to think, how do we kill this guy? And they enter into an argument with him. That's where we pick up in that argument at verse 46. Which of you convicts me of sin? If I speak truth, why do you not believe me? He who is of God hears the words of God. For this reason, you do not hear them because you are not of God. And the Jews, and again, that doesn't mean all the Jewish people. It means the Jewish leadership, the religious leadership, answered and said to him, Do we not say rightly that you have, are a Samaritan? And have a demon. Now it's in the daily Bible study, but I'm not going to read you that portion today. But I, it's it's odd enough that I'll just comment. The term Samaritan for them meant someone who takes our Jewish religion and mixes it with foreign foreign religion. 
as the Samaritans had done. And they're telling Jesus, yeah, you got some Bible in what you teach, uh, but you brought in all kinds of strange foreign ideas. I mean, you're, you're, you're not teaching Judaism. You're teaching a mixture of stuff. And then, by the way, your power, because we can't deny you're healing people and doing incredible stuff, but your power is from the devil. Yeah, it's demonic is what you're using, not God's power. Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. But I do not seek my glory. There is one who seeks and judges. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Would you say never see death? Never see death. The Jews, again, the religious leaders said to him, now we know you have a demon. Abraham died and the prophets also. And you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste of death. Say, never taste of death. Did you notice a difference? They misquoted him. I'll comment later. Surely you are not greater than our father Abraham who died. The prophets died too. Whom do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me of whom you say he is our God. You have not come to know him, but I know him. And if I say I do not know him, I will be a liar like you. But I do know him and keep his word. Your, now hang on, hold on to your hats, here we go. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And he saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, why don't you read it with me, whatever version. Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Wow, here we go. Who am I? For a human being to live in such a way that life has purpose, in order for someone to come to the end of their life and feel satisfied that they lived it well, he or she must have discovered the answer to these two questions. Number one, who is God? Would you say that? Who is God? And number two, who am I? Say that. Look, getting old is really not all that bad. Oh, there's its aches and pains to it. But getting old really isn't the problem. It's coming to, toward the end of your life with regrets. That is the bitterness of old age. They did a study recently. I mean, this was in the last few weeks I was, I was reading it. Where they was, who, what group of people, uh, age-wise, was the happiest group of people? And uh, the most stressed and the most unhappy, do you know what age it was? It's the 20s. Yeah, and I look back on my 20s and go, yeah, mm-hmm, that would be it. <laughs> I remember telling someone how old I was, and I was 25. I said, I'm getting old, a quarter of a century. And this one woman looked at me, and she said, you're a child. <laughs> and I said, thank you. I needed that. Anyway, uh, th- believe it or not, and you, you, this is a little counterintuitive, you wouldn't think it, but, but it's the older group that's the happiest people. Yeah, they are, the, they are the happiest. Getting older isn't the problem. It's coming toward the end of your life filled with regrets. And the deepest regret of all, is it not, that as I lived my life and I wasted it, I don't know what it meant. I look, I've, all these years have gone by, I kept waiting to arrive. I kept waiting to find out who I was. I kept waiting to live for something, and it never came. That is a bitter cup to drink. 
without knowing the answer to the first question, who is God, it is impossible to answer the second, who am I? But just knowing the answer to the first does not mean a person automatically knows the answer to the second. In fact, many people spend most or all of their life with too little understanding about themselves. Historically, the church has provided little help except to say that people are sinners and possibly some statements about being members of the body of Christ. We just have to admit, I mean, you, you've come to church, you sat there, you're told you're a sinner. In fact, you really, for, for large seasons of the, of the the church has just been really rank, you know, rank on that. Uh, you're a dead stick. You're a, you're a sinner. You've got nothing good in you. You know, have a nice day. And uh, are you glad? <laughs> and uh, so, so your job is to come to church and listen to that and go home. And, and, and as a result, we have produced people that, yes, they have a faith in God, but they have no idea who they are. And I want you to understand something. It is critical, not only to your happiness, I mean, that be aside to your fruitfulness, to your effectiveness, to, to you serving God and being who you're supposed to be. You've got to know who you are. Because we really are wired differently. We are different people. And God has a different plan for each one. The Bible says he's, he's, he's ordered your steps. There is a plan for you. That, by the way, God doesn't change his mind ever. His mind is always, when he thinks something, it's the perfect right thing. For him to think anything else or do anything else is sin. He will not, comp, I mean, he has different paths to the same goal. He, will, he, can, he can play the ball where it lies. I mean, you know, if we give him a mess, he'll pick it up and get us back on track. But he doesn't change his plan for you, ever. You got to understand that. Whether you like it or not, the plan's the plan. Who you're called to be is who you're called to be. What you're supposed to do is what you're supposed to do, period. So I either align myself with it or I don't align myself with it. So my steps are ordered and my days are numbered. He knows how long I'm going to live. He has a, he's actually apportioned the seasons of my life. Those things are part of his plan. I'm here, you're here, to make an eternal difference in other people's lives. Do you hear me? Yeah. It isn't about earning money. It isn't about what, what title you ended up with or how many how many stuff you ended up with that really is totally immaterial. That is not the measure of success at all. How many people have you brought the love of God to? How many people have found him? How many people will be there because of you? And I don't mean just witnessing. I mean doing what you're called to do. Because if you do what you're called to do, it will have an eternal effect. That's the greatest gift God has given us said, here, I'm going to let you share in my redemptive work. I'm going to let you be part of what I'm doing on this planet. I'm going to let you affect the spiritual lives of people and their eternity. Wow. I call that important work. One of the most outstanding qualities about Jesus is that he really knew who he was. There was no doubt in his mind. And when he preached, he typically answered both questions. He would tell people who God is. But he would also tell them who he was. And it was the information he revealed about himself that became the center of the controversy which surrounded him. Some of his listeners believed what he said about himself. Others didn't and wanted to kill him. From chapter 1 onward, the Apostle John has been telling us who Jesus is. In fact, clarifying the identity of Jesus is the main goal of this gospel. John said he wrote it. Would you read this out loud with me? 
so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. John wrote to remove all doubt about the unique nature of Jesus. He wanted us to believe that he is both God's eternal son and the human son promised to David, whom God said would sit on David's throne and rule forever. Our purpose for this study today is not to revisit the facts of who Jesus is, but to try to understand how he learned those facts about himself. We want to answer the question, how did Jesus know who he was? One possible answer is that he brought all that knowledge with him from heaven. But John, along with all the other Gospels, shows us Jesus' humanity as well as his divinity. Jesus truly and completely became a man. And Paul tells us that in the process, he laid aside his divine privileges in order to, t to become one of us. In, in that passage in Philippians, the, the, the word is kenosis in the Greek, but, you know, it gets translated, emptied out. They go through all kinds of discussions. But one of the ways you translate that word is, to, is a, the picture of taking off a robe and laying it aside. The picture Paul gives us is, is that Jesus Christ, the Son, the divine Son, is in heaven, and he takes off his privileges of divinity and lays them aside like a cloak. And then Paul says, and he became a man. And then he says, and he submitted to the cross. Not only did he become a human, but he submitted to the most grotesque uh, execution the human race had been able to come up with at that point. And then he says, have that mind in yourselves, which was also in him. Wow. No one knows how much of his divine knowledge he laid aside, or at least refused to use. Now, I say that because Jesus, when we, when we talk about him coming, he, as a, as, a, as a spirit, he existed forever. A spirit isn't something you have. A spirit is who you are. Uh, you don't have a spirit in your pocket. Here's my spirit. That's not it. I'm a spirit talking to your spirit right now. It is the conscious person. It's you. So how do you have two of those? You can't. So if he comes from heaven to earth, then the, then the, the person Jesus comes from heaven to earth, and, but he becomes conceived into the human race. Now, I have a body, soul, and spirit. So does he. Only his spirit's from forever. Mine began in my mother's womb. So did yours. You and I did not exist, pre-exist. We did not come down some chute into a body. We began in conception in our mother's womb. That's when our, our spirit began. What, what a remarkable gift parents have. You conceive an eternal spirit. From that point on, see, spirits don't die. There's no, there's no turning off a spirit. So once you conceive a spirit, that spirit is forever. What a, what a remarkable thing he has done. And he says, now, be fruitful and multiply and have, have children. He calls us to give him children, as it were. No one knows how much he laid aside but, or refused to use. In other words, maybe he just said, I will not use that information at all. But it appears that to some degree, Jesus had to relearn who he was after he was born. That means he too, like us, had to walk in faith. He too, like us, had to refuse doubt. He too, like us, had to choose to believe the amazing things God said about him. Are you following what I'm saying? 
I believe Jesus walked in faith. I believe as he hung on the cross, he was trusting by faith that God would raise him up because the word said it would. You understand? Because if, if, you, if you say, well, no, no, he knew everything, and so he's just walking through a scenario, and he knows the outcome of it all, then you explain to me Gethsemane. What was that about? Because the Gethsemane is, is where he goes into an agony and says, Father, may this cup pass from me. That's not somebody, you know, well, yeah, I'll be dead, but all three days will feel really great. This is, he's, he sees it in the scripture. It's clearly there. The death and resurrection of the Messiah is clearly there. He knows what the word says. He knows what the Spirit's saying to him. He knows the promises. But I believe as he suffered, as he died on the cross, he died trusting God. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? But follow that psalm on through, Psalm 22. It talks about, and I will stand in the assembly of, of, of the righteous, and I will declare the goodness of God. I'll be resurrected. He, if you follow that psalm, he knew what, exactly what he was saying. He was saying, right now, I'm forsaken, but you will raise me up. Hallelujah. He died by faith. He walked by faith, which makes him even more my example to follow. If so, his example shows us how to answer the question for ourselves. As we watch the man, Jesus, discover who he is, we discover where to turn for information about who we are. And before we start on this journey, we should note that there was one avenue of discovery available to Jesus that will never be available to us. And that was his memory of heaven. He existed before he was born. We don't. We begin at conception in our mother's womb. But the other avenues of discovery are available to us. So let's let Jesus teach us how to answer the second question. Who am I? It may be the hardest question for us to answer of all. I wrote a course uh, for our uh, Life Ministry Institute. It's called uh, hearing, hearing God's, Discovering God's Call. No, Hearing God's Call. And then there's one called Discovering God's Gifts. And a third one called Developing Godly Character. Those are three one-unit courses. They're part of our spiritual formation track, which we ask all of our students to take. Here's why. You can study all the theology you want, but if you don't know who you are, uh, it's just, it becomes a waste. And how many people go to Bible college, go to seminary, they go all the way through, they know a whole bunch of stuff, but they still don't know who they are. It's, it's, it's a terrible mistake. So I wrote this course and I took a completely different tract. I didn't, it's not one of these things where you take an aptitude test, you know, you score, you score, you score, and it comes out, ha ha, look what I am, you know, kind of thing. Are you an orange or a yellow or a blue? Are you a spring or a winter? You know, are you a... Are you, are you, whatever, whatever. And, you know, those kinds of courses, those kinds of approaches, you know, you score it out and go, look at me. I've done those. They mean nothing. People go, uh-huh, look at that. It's kind of like fun. And then it has no impact. What, I, what this course is about, and it's a little bit stretching for some people, I, I am guiding you and helping you think back on your spiritual history. And to ask the question, what has God said and done in my life over the course of my life? Because your heavenly father has been guiding you since you were born. Actually, he formed you in your mother's womb for specific things. He's been talking to all of us. 
And, if, and what happens is if I can kind of help you wake up to that and look back on it, I don't, we don't put things in your mind. Just ask you to ask questions and begin to reflect on it. And as people look back over their life, they go, why, he did say that, or that did happen, or I, I, I do recall that. And then you begin to see there's been a pattern, a whole a, a flow of things that God has been saying to you all along about who you are. And the moment that, that realization comes going, oh, He's been trying to tell me this all along. Why did I miss it? Once you get that information from him, not from a test, not because somebody says they, that's what they are, not from your own analysis of your gifts, but you, you, you understand who God is saying you are. Then something, you, you just watch the eyes go on, and I, and I watch people go, oh, and then they are self-motivated. They know who they are now. It's an extremely important truth. By the way, it is not based on your gifts. Gifts is a second class by intention. You cannot say, these are my gifts, therefore this is my call. Calling, listen carefully, is to people. Calling is about your compassion and the faith that God has given you for certain human needs and certain people. Gifting is how you, the tools in your box, the toolbox that you'll use to help people. But calling is to whom? Here, here, here it is. Where do you have a compassion for people? Where do you have that frustration that says, why isn't somebody doing something about that? Where do you see a need? Where does the thing bother you? Where are you troubled as you look around and see people in brokenness or poverty or lost or they're confused or lost? There, God has planted in you a, a, a frustration, you might say. It's a burden is, is the way the Bible calls it. He's given you a burden. He's burdened your heart. Uh, there's a compassion there. For a particular need. That speaks of people. Not what. Who. Who have you been called to? You've got to focus that. Yes there's a world of human need. But you can't meet it all. He's asked you to do that. You understand? He's asked me to do that. And her to do that. We all have our assignments. Who are you called to? Who are you? Their choice to dishonor Jesus would have terrible consequences, these, these religious leaders that were gathered there in that crowd. The Father had sent him to earth to offer, to, uh, to offer salvation. To refuse to believe would bring spiritual death. To believe and submit as a disciple meant the person would by no means, Jesus said, behold. It doesn't say see. There's a very specific word to behold. It means like sitting in a, in a, in a theater and watching something. Uh, to behold, look at and observe death into the age. This is usually translated as never see death. But it doesn't say that. It doesn't say a believer will never see, meaning experience death. It says that a, that person will no longer see it after this present age passes away and the next age, the messianic age, the millennium if you want to call it that, arrives. This is exactly the picture we're given in the New Testament writings. The dead in Christ who have been with him in heaven until he returns to earth will be physically resurrected and come back to earth with him and then they will assist him in governing the earth as his representatives. All believers who die physically before that event takes place will see death. Their bodies will die until the new age arrives. After that, they will never see it again. It's translated never, but I'm telling you, the Greek words mean nothing but what I'm saying. 
into the age. That's what it says. You will not behold death into the age. What age? This present age passing away, when you step into the new age, you will never see death again. Those who don't have him will see death forever. It's, it's, a, it's quite the statement. His opponents misunderstood his words and even misquoted him. And in doing so, they exaggerated his promise until it became absurd. They quoted him as saying, if anyone keeps my word, he will by no means even taste death into the age. By changing the word behold to taste, they changed Jesus' promise and made it say that believers would step into the new age without having physically died beforehand. They would never even have tasted the bitterness of death. For that to happen, a person would have to step directly into the new age without having died at all. That will happen, by the way, to those who are alive and remain. They'll be raptured and caught up with the Lord and transformed. Building on that distortion of his meaning, they proved it, used it to prove that he must be crazy. Their term was demon-possessed, is where they were going. They pointed to the fact that Israel's greatest spiritual leaders had all died and mentioned Abraham and the prophets as examples. They dared him to compare himself to the greatest names in Israel's history. They mockingly asked, you are not greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets who also died, are you? Whom do you make yourself to be? Jesus replied with the same defense he'd been using all along. In effect, he said, these statements about who I am don't come from me. I'm declaring what the Father says about me. If you really knew the person you call your God, then you would recognize what I'm saying is true. You claim that God is your Father and that you are heirs of Abraham's blessings. But you have no genuine relationship with God. You don't know him, but I do. I know him because I have come to earth from being in his presence in heaven. And I know him because I walk with him now in unbroken fellowship. If I were to agree with you and say that I didn't know him, if I were to agree with the charges you're making against me, I would, if I deny that God was the source behind all I've been saying and doing, I would be lying. It would be as dishonest for me to say that, that I don't know him, as it is for you to say you do know him. The truth is, I know him and obey him. I want to pick up at verse 56 and 59. Hang on to your hats. Here we go. Then Jesus made a statement that simply stunned his opponents. He said, Abraham, your father, rejoiced in his spirit. The word he uses, I looked up every use of it in the New Testament. There is no question what this means. Every time this word is used, it's speaking of someone rejoicing in their spirit. John the Baptist in his mother's womb did this. He rejoiced in his spirit when Mary came with Christ in her. Remember that? He rejoiced in his spirit. It's quite the word. Abraham, your father, rejoiced in his spirit that he might see my day and he saw it and was glad. Jesus may have intended these words to mean that Abraham prophetically looked into the future and saw that God would send his son to die for our sins. That moment of seeing may have occurred when Abraham offered a ram instead of his son Isaac on Mount Moriah. But Jesus' opponents took his words literally. They said, you are not yet 50 years and you have seen Abraham? To which Jesus replied, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham came into being, I am. He does not use the to be verb. He does it before Abraham was. He does not use the to be verb. He uses a word, genomai, from genao, to be birthed, to begin. It's the, it's the origin of things. He says, before Abraham came into being, I am. 
they told him it wasn't possible. He wasn't old enough to have seen Abraham. They asked how could he say he had? And whether or not his opponents had misunderstood what he meant by his original statement. Jesus answered their question. How was it possible for him to have known a man who had died 20 centuries earlier? The answer was, he was older than Abraham, far older. Like the one who spoke to Moses from the burning bush, or perhaps because he was the one who spoke to Moses from the burning bush, Jesus applied to himself one of the greatest statements of self-revelation made by God in the entire Bible. He used the term, I am, which God used to reveal his eternal nature. It means he is timeless. He doesn't have a beginning or an end. He always is. This is a quality possessed only by God. So either Jesus' statement is true or it is breathtaking blasphemy. And his opponents chose to believe it was blasphemy and picked up stones to stone him as a blasphemer. Then John says, Jesus was hidden. Doesn't say he hid himself. Why they translated that, I have no idea. It says he hid him. He, 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 he did not hide himself. He was hidden. By the, his followers may have hidden him by surrounding him so that he could slip through the crowd and leave the temple. All right, four sources of information. With these remarkable words, before Abraham came into being, I am. Would you say that? Before Abraham. Let's ask the question again. How did Jesus know who he was? As we read through the Gospels, we come across passages that point us toward an answer. There appear to be four sources. Number one, Jesus learned about himself from the stories his mother and Joseph told him about the events surrounding his birth. We know about these because they have been recorded in the Gospels. And there is no reason to believe that Mary and Joseph did not tell these things to Jesus. The miracle of his conception. The prophetic statements made by the angel Gabriel. The prophecies Zacharias and Elizabeth were given about John the Baptist. Elizabeth and Mary's prophecies about Jesus while he was still in the womb. The angels appearing in the night sky over the fields of Bethlehem. Anna and Simeon at the temple and the dreams given to Joseph that warned them to flee to Egypt. By the time Jesus was 12 years old, he literally thought of God as his father. Why would Mary and Joseph not have told him? Would you as a parent have told your son if those kinds of things had happened? There is no reason whatsoever for not to. The, the, um, if you look at the Gospel of Luke... Uh, the first two chapters. All you have to do in sections about Mary and, and much of the narrative is change the pronouns from, from her uh, to I. And you can listen to Mary narrate that story to uh, Luke. It, it's, it, try it. You can, you, you just, you, it's, it's, you, he literally sat down with her. It's clear. And said, tell me what happened. Tell me the story. I want to know the story. And then he's writing it down. And you can change the pronouns and you can hear her tell her story. She's a godly woman. She's a woman who knows the Lord. She's a woman who can prophesy really well. Uh, this is, this, that's why the Lord chose her for his, his mother. Um, she's, a, she's, a, she's a great woman. 
I believe she told him these things. I believe she taught him these things. At what age, I don't know. But by 12, you recall, he remained behind in the temple debating and discussing with the, with the temple teachers, with the, with the great teachers of Israel. Uh, the rest of the, uh, the Galilee group that traveled together had left, and they didn't even know Jesus wasn't in this group. And he stays behind, and he's talking about things and debating with it. What sort of things? Well, I'm pretty sure I know. It's, it's these passages that speak of Messiah. He, he's the one who, who just kept stumping everybody. Remember, he says, if, if David, if the, you know, if the Messiah is David's son, Psalm, this is, what is this, Psalm 110? If the if Messiah is David's son, why does he call him Lord? Now listen, in that culture, you never call your son Lord. You may call him Fred, but you won't call him Lord. <laughs> yeah. He, no matter, I mean, he might be Messiah, but a father still has a preeminence. There's, a, there's an authority or a, or a role there. You don't call your son Lord. So what's he going after? He's making him go, why would David call his son, his descendant, who became a, will become Messiah? Why would he call him Lord? Only because he has a different nature. He is divine as well as human. It, 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 it's, he's, these are profound insights. You know, you'll hear people say, well, the church uh, afterwards turned Jesus into a God. You know, they wrote all that stuff in. No, 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 no. He taught the church. He's the one who took these passages. Remember in, on the road to Emmaus, as they're walking with him, it says he, he took the scriptures, starting with, the, with the, the, the books of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms. And through all of the scriptures, he showed them how he, they spoke of him. He's the one who taught us these things. He's the one who took us to these Psalms and opened them up to us. He, he, as from early on, he knew who he was and the Lord revealed to him the scriptures. I believe he was taught, first of all, by parents. Number two, Jesus discovered himself in the scriptures. As he listened to the Torah and the prophets being read in the synagogue in Nazareth, or as he memorized and read large portions of scripture for himself, beginning uh, at, eight, at four or five years old, Jesus was given profound insight into the Bible. He grew up in Nazareth. He grew up in the synagogue in Nazareth, a, a devout family. And every synagogue didn't have all the books of the Bible. You need to know that. They would have a Torah, and then they would have whatever, whatever texts that they could have had. And I can guarantee you, there's one scroll of one prophet that you, you, it's just un, you can't be doubted that, that, that the synagogue in Nazareth had. What, what prophet would that be? Isaiah. Isaiah. He quotes Isaiah so freely and so consistently. Uh, and you can certainly tell that. A, a, a Jewish boy or girl, beginning at the age four or five, was taught to memorize to read the, from the Torah, beginning at four or five years old, every Jewish child goes to Beth Midrash, Beth, Beth, Beth Sefer. They go to school. And there's a synagogue school. And they be, they're taught to write, they're taught to read, they're taught to recite, all of these things. And what are they doing entirely from, first of all, the Torah? They, they learn basically to memorize the Torah. Uh, in those childhood years. And then when they get to their, uh, uh, I think it's about their 
12, 11 years old, they do Beth Midrash and they begin to learn to interpret and they go on with the prophets and other things. But, but Jesus was taught the word of God. And it, it, so he knew it and it came to life in him uh, as, as, as the spirit explained it to him. He saw who he was and where he came from and what God had sent him to do. He saw his violent death and his resurrection. He even quoted a psalm that prophetically describes his death as he hung on the cross. That psalm, 22, also assured him that he would rise from the dead. By faith, he gave himself to death, clinging to the promise that he would rise again. This is an important feature. I really believe Jesus learned of himself and walked in faith with what he saw in the word of God. When he came out to the Jordan River to be baptized by John, you remember this, he, he had done no ministry before this, nothing. He'd been a good son. He'd been a hard worker. Uh, he'd probably been the breadwinner for a while. It appears Joseph is dead. He shows up at the Jordan River to John, and he says, John, baptize me. John looks at him, knows him. It's his first cousin. Elizabeth says, John's mother. And he says, no, you should baptize me. You haven't done anything. And, you know, because baptism at that point meant uh, wash away your sins, call on God for mercy. And Jesus has done no sin. So it's an odd moment. Why is he coming? What's this about? And he says, no, but to fulfill all righteousness, you need to baptize me. What was happening? Here's what I, I believe in that moment. Jesus changed baptism from being a washing away of sin to a grave. Jesus had nothing to wash away. But what he's standing there doing, he knows he's read his Bible. He's read Isaiah 53. He's read Psalm 22. He's read Psalm 16. He's read Zechariah 12. He, he's read, he knows what's going to happen to him. He's read Daniel 9. He, he, he looks at all this and, he's, and, and, he, and he's, here's, the, here's what he read. That the Messiah, who he knows is him. We'll have his beard torn out. He'll be spit on. He'll be beaten beyond recognition that men will hide their faces from him. He will be so badly battered that he will be pierced uh, for our iniquities, that, that, the, that our, the sins of the world will be placed upon him, that he will be the most uh, man of sorrow uh, and spit on. For him to choose to follow that path to him to say yes to the Father, he knows where it goes. He knows what is ahead for him. A horrible death and cross. So he comes to John. He doesn't say, John, I'm going to wash my sins away. He says, John, bury me. And John doesn't wash him. John buries him in a grave. And what is, what is Jesus saying to the Father? I embrace the cross and the calling on my life. You've asked me to die. I will do it. And I will, I will drink the cup you've given me. And he raises him up. And how does the father respond in that moment? Heaven's open. My beloved son, in whom I'm well pleased. And the spirit of God descends from heaven and comes on him and remains on him. And John sees it as a dove coming and resting upon. In that moment, Jesus is baptized in the Holy Spirit. The man, Jesus, is now baptized in the Spirit. And from that moment on, his ministry begins. 
Not until that moment. He did no miracles, nothing before that. He now baptized in the power of the Spirit, now surrendered to the path of the cross. Now his ministry begins and everything starts. Number three, openly and inwardly, the Father confirmed who Jesus was by an audible voice from heaven. I mentioned one of those. By signs and miracles, and even by sending angels to help him over and over again in many ways. He told Jesus he was his son and that he dearly loved him. Make note of that. He does it for us too. And finally, Jesus, number four, had a fourth avenue of self-revelation that we don't have. To one degree or another, even after becoming a man, Jesus remembered heaven. He says so, especially in the Gospel of John. He assured his listeners that he was telling them truths he had seen or heard firsthand in heaven. And I give you examples of that. But when John opens his Gospel, he makes this remarkable statement. He says, no man hath seen God at any time. Remember this? John 1.18. No man has seen God at any time. And then he says this, the only begotten God, monogenes, Theos, the only begotten God, he hath, and the word he uses is unusual, it means reported what you've seen. He has reported to us what he has seen in heaven. You follow this? No man has seen God at any time. Why, who I am not. If God wants us to know who we are, our culture wants us to know who we are not. We are taught from childhood to define ourselves by our victimization, our disabilities, our addictions, our brokenness, our fears, our diseases, even our allergies. Everything is about limitations, blame, and survival. The process puts us into a mental prison and cautions us against expecting too much from ourselves. Isn't that the culture's message? Now calm down, you're wounded, you're, you're, you know, if you can just survive, you do really well. You know, good for you. Don't, you know, people like you, and don't they categorize you? Don't you have numbers or uh, you know, letters for who you are? And lists of alliterations, that's you. And people like you, uh, you do this, and... You know, so we'll just kind of, that the culture is just dumbing people down amazingly. Just saying, uh, don't expect anything. Don't expect anything. You can't do anything. We'll just keep you buzzed and, and uh, keep you from hurting anyone. You know. None of our culture's answers to the question, who am I, are like the answers we find if we follow Jesus' example. So it will require a deep decision by many of us to let go of these negative self-definitions pressed on us by our culture and to choose instead to believe the answers God provides. He calls you and me to push through fear. He calls you and me to rise up beyond, not in our own strength, but in the power he will give to us. Uh, it, it, the culture says you can't, you know, relax, calm down. People like you are wounded. People like you can't do it. He, the Bible calls us another direction. What are our sources? What do our sources say to us? Three of the ways Jesus learned about himself are available to us. They are, number one, Jesus listened to the stories his parents told about him. So can we. 
God actually talks to parents, whether they listen to it or not, whether they're believers or not. Because you see, every human is spiritual. Remember this. Created in God's image. That has nothing to do with being saved or unsaved. You are made in God's image, meaning you are an eternal spirit. So you hear spiritual stuff, whether you want to or not, uh, which is part of the issue that people deal with. Uh, so the, the radio's on, you know, in, in, in many ways. So God is talking to you. Just think about this. How many of you have had your parents, God said something to you, or unusual circumstances, or there were things about your early childhood, you know, that, that, that your parents will tell you stories about you? Say, you, you, you were like this, or you did this. It was odd, it was unusual, or it was beautiful. It was remarkable about you. Your, your parents will tell you that. Some of you uh, have had really broken homes and, and situations, and your parents didn't, but maybe there's a grandparent. Maybe there's, a, there's even a neighbor. Maybe there's someone. And even if you have no one, there are stories about you, whether you know it or not. There are stories about you uh, that, that, that God had. What are some of yours? Let me just ask the question. How many say, no, I've heard stories about me? Raise your hands. Good and high. Raise them higher even. People, yeah. Look at that because it's most of us. It's a remarkable thing. That is part of the process. I've heard people say, well, I'm not going to listen to my parents. They're not, they're not Christians. That's crazy. That is crazy. Uh, I don't care. If, I mean, sure, we'd like them to be Christians, but that's not the point. Uh, your parents... Your, your parents, no matter how sick they are, love you nonetheless. I mean, it's just, it's organic. You can't not. I mean, I know there's some really narcissistic people, and I, I understand all that. But somehow deep inside, there's still something there. There's an attachment. And God has shown them things about you. And listen. You don't have to take everything they say. You know, some of the things may be coming right out of their own ambitions or their own fears. Fine, just sift it out. But Listen. Don't, don't divorce yourself from your parents. Listen to them, your grandparents, and some of the stories they tell. My mom told me, when, you know, she's a number of things, but um, <laughs> one of them, when I was, I was in first grade, and I do, I do actually remember this when she said it. Um, she said I got called to the school to come, and, and, um, because you'd been uh, put into the principal's office. It's first grade. And uh, so I'm sitting in the principal's office when she arrives, and <clears throat> she comes in, and oh, what's this about? And, and she says, what did you do? And I said, I, I didn't do anything. She <laughs> said, what did you do? She said, I, I said, I only said one word. Said, oh, what word was it? charge. My side had beat their side. I said, charge! <laughs> I did. I, mean, I, I don't know why. I'd be lining them up on the playground and my guys against their guys. Charge! And we won. And I'm in the principal's office. that tell you anything about my personality? <laughs> mm. Woo! There are stories about you. There are stories about... I can think of one of my children whose propensity would be... Uh, uh, she, she would, as a little girl, she would, she would find the lonely person on the playground. The person who had no friends, you know, and uh, totally unsolicited, would just go sit with that person. 
What, an, what, what a remarkable quality. That's, that's, that's her little heart. I mean, that's, that's who she is. I mean, that's what's woven in there. See it? Of another one that would find somebody who's really broken and sick and try to rescue him. There's another one. Hallelujah. Uh, with given wisdom, that, that'll be fine. Without it, it's <laughs> devastating. Um, I, I, you can think of, you can literally watch. If you think you form your children, good luck with that. Uh, all, you, you, you mildly mod, modify them. <laughs> They come with who they are. I mean, I can think they're, they're, they're who they are in the womb. I mean, we, we had one that, you know, out would come this foot, you know, and Mary pushes it, and the foot out the other side, you know. And then if you push, that kiddo pushed back, you know. Strong little will. You know what? A lot of us have strong will children, amen? We need them. And, and the, honestly, this is, this is a dangerous culture to not have a strong will in. They need to be strong-willed good. You know, but, and, and may I add, that one is uh, very. Uh, but boy, don't, don't run away from strong will. Um, if you haven't had a strong-willed child, it's because you had one and you got lucky. Uh, uh, maybe. Because <laughs> uh, anyway. Um, but... The, 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 God forms them. God makes them these ways. And your parents, your grandparents, the people that love you will have stories about you. Listen to those. Number two, Jesus discovered the truth about himself by reading the Bible. So can we. What will you find? You'll find that there is a plan for you. That you've been woven in your mother's womb and designed for certain things. Your days are numbered, your steps are ordered, and that God dwells in you. You will find all sorts of promises about you that call you up. Paul will say, forgetting what lies behind. Not being defined by the brokenness of the past. Didn't mean it didn't happen. But it's not going to limit you. You know, interestingly enough, God is actually able to take the broken things that happen to you, the horrible things that happen to you, and use those to sensitize you and give you understanding, to teach you faith in those areas, so that those become the most powerful areas in your life for ministry. For me, the years of, the, the many years of depression, of, of savage depression, of dealing with all of those agony, I learned to walk with God in the thing. So I'm constantly talking to somebody going, oh, you can come out of this. I know you can. Don't you believe you're going to be like this? Because what happens to a depressive is they think I'm going to suffer like this forever and they want to kill themselves. Not because they don't want to live, but because they can't bear the pain. And I got to tell them, it's not true. I can teach you how to come out of this. I know I can. I, I do it and I teach others and they come out. I know this thing is not, why? I walked through that. Where's your pain? Where's your suffering? God's promise is he causes all things to work together for good. Paul says, for the, Paul, he takes the things wherewith we were comforted and causes us to use those to comfort others. Did you read that? 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Yeah, he takes those things. That's what my Bible says. It's what your Bible says. See, the Bible will change your destiny. It talks about a whole nother person. And number three, Jesus listened to the many ways God confirmed who he was. He confirms today. How does he do it? One, when you are doing what God wants you to do, his anointing, his presence, his strength comes over you. And it does not mean it's something you like to do. You know, people say, what do you like to do? What's fun? 
has nothing to do with his calling. Let me just tell you, if it's fun, it probably isn't what he's called you to do. It's, I, I don't mean there's, you know, never mind. You will find that when you step out and do what you're supposed to do, and you're often overwhelmed and frightened, it just seems to go hand in hand. Here comes a power. Here comes the grace. God shows up. You know what I mean? God shows up. And he does it over and over and over and over and over again. He doesn't stop. You're in an area God's called you to do. There are other things you want to do. No grace. <laughs> Not supposed to do that. Watch for what he anoints. Watch for what he touches. Watch where he blesses. And the second thing, watch where the people of God prophetically speak to you. They come up and just as, it, 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 with a sweetheart say, I just want you to know, you really blessed me when you did that. Man, that was good. You touched my heart. You touched my life. The people of God will speak to you and they will affirm where God has worked in your life, their, their lives through you. You can find it. So who am I? If I will follow Jesus' example, the same sources that taught him will teach me. And the person I discover will be vastly different from the person my culture says I am. His sources will reveal the calling and giftings God planned for me when he formed me in my mother's womb. His sources will reveal who I am in Christ. His sources will reveal the great promises that are at work in my life. His sources will reveal the role the Lord wants me to play in the body of Christ. You've been decided you're supposed to be part of a community of people and he's made you to fit in with God's people. His sources will reveal what I do that pleases the Lord. His sources will reveal that I have no limitations that can prevent me from fulfilling all God has planned for me. His sources will reveal that I can, read this with me, run through a troop, jump over a wall, and bend a bow of bronze. His sources will reveal that I can, read this, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. When Moses went to the burning bush, it's a Shekinah glory burning off of this bush. And it, a voice talks to him. And, and God begins to tell him, I want you to do this and this, and you're going to speak, and I'm going to make you a great leader, and you're going to deliver my people from slavery in Egypt. Moses' response is to look within to look at his own capacities and say, I don't speak well, I'm insecure, uh, I, 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 I'm not the right person. I don't have the ability to do what you're asking me to do. Was he correct? He is correct. He could not in the natural do what he was asked to do. But when God speaks to us, he's not asking, do you have the capacity? He's asking simply for obedience. Because when he works, it's the miracles he provides that make it happen, not your skills. Do you follow this? So he, he, Moses presses the thing almost to the, point, well, to the point of sin, really. And finally God says, all right, bring your brother in if you have to. You know, and, and that's how Aaron got on the board. Um, all right, bring him in. Uh, have him speak for you. Because God was thinking, I just need an obedient heart. And Moses was a, was a humble man. And he said, I just need an obedient, humble man. And if you'll just do what I tell you, 
I'll do the stuff. People, that's true for you. That's true for me. If you will just do what he asks you to do, the miracle will flow. The grace will be there. The power is there. He's not, you're his servant. You're not the person doing it. He's doing it. He just needs you to do your part, to do what he's asked you to do, and he'll do great things through us. Amen? Amen. Amen. Would you stand with me? Blessed be God. Lord God, this day, we choose to put aside what our culture, the limitations, the fears, the, the, the defeatist attitude, the mental prison that our culture would put us in. Forgive us when we, like Moses, look at ourselves and refuse because we assess maybe correctly that we haven't the capacity to do what you ask. Lord, we're presuming. We're presuming that you're asking us to do it for you, not do it with you. Forgive us for that. Lord, I ask for each one of us, particularly the person who's discouraged, particularly the person who's defeated and sad, who's living out their days not knowing who they are. And I just declare over you the truth. The truth is there is a purpose and a plan, and it has huge eternal value. That's not my thoughts. That's the scripture. That's what God says about each of his sons and daughters. No exceptions. Absolutely no exceptions. He has a purpose for you. He's numbered your days. He's ordered your steps. He's formed you in your mother's womb. Whether your mother told you about it or not, he's formed you and made you for his purposes. He's empowered you so you can do above and beyond what you would ask or think. He can do great things through him. And so, Lord, we put on right now faith. We put on hope. We put on strength. We face the days we live in not afraid, not beaten, not waiting them out. But to follow you, just say, we, we know who we are, and we will follow and obey your word. Blessed be the God who will use us mightily. For we have, like Jesus Christ, a purpose and a plan for our lives. We will follow our Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. And if you agree with that, would you say amen? amen? Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, please click the like button, subscribe, and share it with a friend. For more information, just head to our website, lifelessonspublishing.com. That's lifelessonspublishing.com. There you'll be able to order many of the books Pastor Steve has written.